Well, amen. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, find Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. We'll begin reading together in verse 22 and read to the end of the chapter. Genesis 18. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous in the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If you find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. So again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of God. We don't experience somber enough. I mean, think about it. As we go through our life, we may experience a moment of somber. Maybe we're scrolling through Facebook and we see a video that's pretty serious and that's that's pretty sad, only to then be met right after that video with, with a video of a puppy to make us laugh or an ad to get our attention and get us to think about something else. This might come as a shock, but I don't actually listen to Christian radio all the time. And sometimes I think the fault that Christian radio does, as much as I love it, is that it puts the emphasis all on encouragement, which isn't bad, but the Christian life isn't all butterflies and rainbows. And the Psalms are full of examples of the people of God experiencing the valleys of somber praise. Solomon offers a powerful word in the book of Ecclesiastes. Look what he says, Ecclesiastes 7.2. He says this, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living 
will lay it to heart. He says, hey, you gain more wisdom, you grow in more grace, and you encounter God often in a more, in a more poignant way at a funeral than you do at the wedding. And he says, hey, this, this encouragement and laughter can be good, but there's a need for somber in our life. And this text this morning is somber. In fact, the next several weeks together, as we dive into Genesis 19 next week, will be very, very somber. And it's one of the incredible benefits of doing verse-by-verse Bible teaching like we do here is we're forced to encounter a broad array of realities and truths, even some very somber and heavy truths. But as we come to a text like what's in front of us, we have to ask ourselves, what are we supposed to do with it? If we have to ask ourselves, if we came to this in our private Bible reading, we'd want to ask ourselves, how do I take a deep dive into this passage, even when it's difficult to understand? And and I want us to take a deep dive into Genesis 18, 22 to 33, and provide you, hopefully, with some questions that I would love for you to take home into your personal Bible reading. Take these questions home, and as you read through the Bible, I think these questions will help to aid in our reflection on a passage. And so, there's five questions here to take a deep dive. First, we ask, what is the context? There's our first question we need to ask. In other words, what's going on? None of us would just start a TV series or a movie right in the middle of it and expect to know what's going on or expect to really get the full benefit. And the same goes with the Bible. We need to consider the context of the whole book of Genesis But particularly, we need to consider the context of the chapter that we're in. If you remember last week, we were in a very busy 24 hours in the life of Abraham. His life began with what we saw last week in verses 1 to 21, when three men, who we learn later are angels, arrive at Abraham's tent around noon, and Abraham displayed hospitality toward these men, and he brought them this incredible meal. He put this incredible meal before them, And these men arrived, and they brought a word of hope to Abraham and Sarah. They said, mark it on the calendar. God is going to give you a son, and it'll be about this time next year. Sarah was listening in behind the tent and laughed out loud inside, right? She laughed at this idea. How could God give a child to a 90-year-old woman and a 100-year-old man? So after lunch, the men set their sights on Sodom, and they came to Abraham with a glorious promise, but came with a prophecy of destruction about Sodom. So they came, your first point, God made a promise to Abraham and a prophecy about Sodom. As we saw back in chapter 13, Lot, Abraham's nephew, was living in Sodom at this time, and so this was very relevant to Abraham. He was very concerned here. And last week closed with these words. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So we see God brought this promise, hey, Abraham, you're going to have a son, but also this prophecy about Sodom, it's going to be destroyed. And we get this powerful scene, Abraham begins to pray to intercede for Sodom 
and Gomorrah. But we need all that context in order to begin to dive into this. Then as we read, we ask ourselves the second question. What does this passage teach us about God? Every passage of the Bible, whether explicitly or implicitly, is here to tell you about God. And to some of you, that sounds really elementary, but you'd be surprised how many times people come to the Bible first for a nugget for themselves before they ever think about a nugget about God. You're here to know about God from this, not to get your latest self-help wisdom, first and foremost, right? God wrote it through human authors to reveal himself to us. What does this passage reveal about God? First, it tells us that God is just. It tells us that God is just. Notice the passage describes these angels, God, through these angels, as going down to see the situation, in these cities. This language might sound familiar because it's used, it's, it's similar language to what Genesis 11 described when the Lord went down to the Tower of Babel before God scattered the nations. And this is meant to teach us not that God has to travel somewhere, but this is language cueing us in that judgment is coming. This is one of the many examples through the Bible of where the, the Bible will accommodate, use language to accommodate to us, to help us to understand what's going on. God is everywhere and all-knowing, but he wants us to put in the emphasis that God's going to show up at this city in a particular way. He's going to come here in, in a way that's unique and different. And so through speaking in this way, it's something we can relate to. And look what happens. Verse 22, so the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood before the Lord. As the Lord through these angels heads to Sodom, Abraham gets into the presence of God. And he begins to intercede to pray for Sodom. And I think this is worth considering. Sodom was a wicked city. We're told over and over and over again throughout the book of Genesis and beyond, Sodom is always a city that represents the absolute rebellion and unfettered sinfulness. And here, Abraham is standing before the Lord on their behalf. He's praying on behalf of these wicked people. And Abraham goes to God in true communion because he speaks to God, and then God begins to speak back. Look at verse 23. Then Abraham drew near and said, God, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous in the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that are in it? And, and we see that God responds back to him in this. And what Abraham is doing here is so instructive for us. He is rooting his prayer in God's character. He's saying, God, you are a righteous judge. You are just. Would you sweep away the city and destroy the 50 righteous along with it? And then he continues, verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom, 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? 
Let me tell you something. This verse has proven in my life to be an incredible comfort in a world of injustice. If you haven't found this out yet, life is often not fair. Many times. That's right. Stuff will happen in your life that seems cruel and unusual and seems anything but just. But Genesis 18.25 pulls back the veil and shows us that nothing will be left unjust in the end. The judge of all the earth will do what is right. Maybe you've been wronged, cheated, maligned. Friends, God sees And the judge of all the earth will set it right. Whether on this side or the next side of eternity, God is always just. There's nothing in any part of the cosmos that will not be set right. This text reveals to us that God is just. But it also reveals to us, second, that God is merciful. That God is merciful. I said this before, but I think it's worth saying again. Abraham let what he knew about God drive what he prayed before God. He knew God was just, but he also knew that God would receive him in mercy and grace. Did you notice it says that Abraham drew near to God? Isn't that incredible that the glorious king and judge of all the earth is ready to receive so that Abraham could draw near to him. And look what Abraham says, verse 27. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Intercession is bold. And anytime we step into the presence of the Lord, we are dust and ashes stepping before him, coming before the creator of the universe, the one who Genesis 1-1 says spoke heaven and earth into existence. This is the one he's coming before, and he's praying and asking, and he is received with mercy. And Abraham even steps forward again. Look, his boldness here, in fact, he steps forward five times. Verse 28, look what he says. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Notice again, Abraham spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are there, Lord. And God answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak, suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Bold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. Lord, don't get annoyed with me. I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Incredible. While we won't dive into Genesis 19 this morning, we're going to do that next week, we know what happens in that chapter. God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah while rescuing Lot and his family out of Sodom. God displays justice and mercy simultaneously. 
One of my favorite Bible scholars is a guy named Dr. Jim Hamilton. He was one of my professors at, at Southern Seminary. He writes a lot of books. He's very, he's very, he's very sharp and, and I think very much uh, puts things in a very simple way. And he wrote a big book because uh, that's what seminary professors do in their time, right, is write, write big books. And he, he seeks to summarize the message of the Bible by working through all of it. He takes to study and comment on every part of the Bible in order to come out with the central message of it. And he did all this study, and he came out the other side, and he said, the central message of the Bible is God's glory in salvation through judgment. Is God's glory in salvation through judgment, that God is glorified to save in mercy, but to do so through judgment. For example, God would save Noah by having him build a boat and then take him through the waters of judgment, right? Or Lot, he saves Lot by taking him out of the city while the fire falls. And he saves us by having his only son crushed under the weight of judgment on the cross. God's mercy displayed alongside his judgment. And the judge of all the earth would kindly and mercifully receive Abraham into communion with himself. He would allow the dust of the earth like us to enter into a sweet relationship and covenant with him. And notice, he doesn't simply tolerate him, he welcomes him. Notice how many times he's able to come before him, Lord, well, what, what, about, what about 35, Lord? What about 20? What about 10? And Jesus highlights this incredible heart of God in Matthew chapter 11. And right after he speaks about how the Pharisees would be judged worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, he extends great mercy. Here's what he says, Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. See this, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you see it? The judge of all the earth is also gentle and lowly at heart. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. He offers true life and rest to those who come to him. This is what Abraham experienced, and you can experience it as well. He welcomes Abraham into true communion, into true life with himself. And this is the sort of communion, the kind that Abraham's having here, that you can have when you are saturated in the Word of God. Because the truth of the Bible was what fed Abraham's prayer life. Sure, Abraham didn't go down to the, you know, to the life way and buy him a, a you know, leather-bound book that he read, right? That, that, didn't, that didn't happen. It doesn't seem like Abraham had something like that, but he had encountered God and knew him personally. He had heard about what God did through Abraham and Noah and, and through Adam and Noah and others. And what he learned about and what he, and he, and what he had learned about fed what he prayed. Your word, the word fed his prayer life and his prayer life fed the word. And friends, this is a powerful reminder that no matter what this pandemic may keep you from doing, the simple acts of faithfulness are what ultimately fuel your obedience. Simple acts like reading the Word. And friends, it's on your phone now. <laughs> you can get it anywhere you need it. 
Simple acts like praying and spending time before the Lord. This passage teaches us that God is both just and merciful. But the third question we need to ask, we don't simply need to stop there. We think about the context. We think about what it says about God. Then we ask, what does this passage teach about humanity? What does this passage teach about humanity? And let me put this simply, humanity is sinful. Humanity is sinful. Sodom is a picture of the wickedness of humanity, the full extent of where sin can take you. To borrow what Paul said in Romans chapter 1, Sodom is a picture of people given over. And verse 20 of chapter 18 describes that there is an outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah that is great and their sin is very grave. And over and over, doesn't Abraham say, hey, don't cast it out. Don't cast out the wicked city. And friends, let me say, this isn't simply true of Sodom. This is true of us. Consider how the book of Romans speaks of all mankind. The book of Romans says this about all of us. Here's what it says, Romans chapter 3. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. He's pretty clear there, right? No one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, which is snakes, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. They have no fear of God before their eyes. Notice first that Paul runs down just a list of Old Testament passages there. He's just throwing them all out, one after, after another, after another, after another. But notice he also seems to cover every aspect of our humanity. Not only does he say, no one is righteous, no, not one, but he begins to walk down from our throats to our lips, to our mouths, down to our feet, even what's before our very eyes, none is righteous, no, not one. And Sodom is a real historical picture of a world if we had been left in our sin. It's a picture of a world without grace. What happens when we are left to ourselves and our own devices? Here's what Jude says about Sodom. Jude makes it pretty clear. He says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. See it? It, it, they are an example for us. And they're an example, clearly, that humanity is not naturally, morally good. That's not going to sell a lot of books. That's not going to bring a lot of people into the church. But that's okay, because the Bible says it's true, that the foundation for understanding God's Word is that all are sinners. And I think we're so bad. Sometimes we talk about how, well, everybody's a sinner. And we do it in a far more relaxed and comfortable and passive way than we should. We go, well, everybody's a sinner, so I'm just going to go sin. (laughs) No, 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 no. All being sinners isn't something we say to minimize the reality, but it should rather maximize the impact that every person here, every person you meet, even the person you see in the mirror every day has been impacted at every level by sin. 
That all of us are stained and left guilty before the judge of all the earth. And this has a direct impact on the solution to moral injustices in our world. Friends, hear me. Government can may be able to restrain evil, but it cannot abolish or cleanse sinful hearts. Romans 13 says, sure, it can restrain some evil, but it cannot be the solution to people's just moral autonomy and their moral evil. In fact, Sodom is an example of a city of a government that actually was making matters worse. (laughs) This passage teaches us about the sinfulness of humanity. Fourth, as we come to a passage like this, we need to ask, what is this passage? How does it point us to Jesus? How does this passage point us to Jesus? Where is Jesus in all of this? First, consider Abraham's relationship to God. Consider Abraham's relationship with God. He is just as impacted by sin as any of Sodom was. Romans chapter 3 is about Abraham too. There's not some like asterisks there that go down to the bottom of the page and says, well, accept Abraham. No, yet he comes confidently boldly before the judge of all the earth and finds him to also be his father in heaven. How can this be? How can Abraham find God what, to, to be his father? What separated him and Sodom? Well, Romans 3 actually provides the answer. Back to Romans 3. Look what it says. Romans 3.25 tells us that Jesus Christ was put forward as a propitiation, that's just a payment of debt, by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine patience or forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See this. Abraham came before God as if he was righteous, even though he wasn't, and pleads before him on behalf of a wicked Sodom. How's he able to do that? Because Abraham, though he had not yet had this son of promise, the son of promise was coming. Jesus hadn't come yet and wouldn't come for thousands of years, so it appears as if God just didn't deal with Abraham's sin, and yet Abraham had set his hope on the coming son of promise, on Jesus Christ who would come and live a righteous life and die on the cross to pay our debt and rise again from the dead, and that that is the only way people have ever been saved from sin, whether it's Abraham looking forward or us looking back. That is the only way. And in it, see, it says that God would be both just and the justifier. God doesn't just let sin go, but it's actually punished and dealt with because Jesus died to pay for that penalty, and he can justify and welcome and extend mercy and love because the sin has been dealt with. That the cross sin is punished, and the judge of all the earth will judge his sin, and the debt is paid in the death of Jesus so that he can have humanity justified and set right through repentance And faith. How can we stand before the judge and call him father? Through the cross. How can Abraham come boldly before a throne and plead on behalf of others? Through the gospel. 
Abraham's sin would be dealt with in the same place any of our sins can be dealt with. In a bloody cross and an empty tomb, Abraham could stand before the judge with fearless humility because he had faith in the coming Jesus. Abraham's relationship points us to Jesus, but beyond that, see this, Abraham's intercession before God points us to Jesus. Consider this, John 17, Jesus comes before the Father after the supper with his disciples on the night he was betrayed, and he prays for his disciples, and not just them. Look what he says. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he says, I'm not just praying for those here at supper with me, but anyone who would believe through my disciples, friends, that's you. If you have come to believe Jesus is praying for you here. And he prays lots of things. He prays for his glory to be manifested among us. He prays for our unity. He prays that we might be kept from the evil one. But ultimately, he prays that we might be kept until the end. Look, John 17, 24. One of the greatest, one of my favorite verses. Jesus prays here, Father, I desire that they also, that is, believers who will believe whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There's so much packed in there that we don't have time for, but consider this. Just as Abraham stood before heaven pleading for the welfare of Sodom, Jesus stands in heaven today praying for the eternal welfare of his church of his people. And he says that we might persevere to the end. He says, I pray that you might be with me and see my glory. He says, I pray that they're going to make it to the end and rejoice eternally in my glory. Oh, and hear this. The Bible talks about how if we pray according to the will of God, he hears and he answers. Well, consider this. Jesus is the Son of God, and so he, his prayers are always answered. Because who knows the will of, of, of the Trinitarian God better than the second person of the Trinity himself praying for these things? Jesus asked God, let them be with me. What he prays for will be done. We can stand secure because we are in the prayers of the perfect high priest who is interceding for us. What incredible news for us. This passage points us toward the character of God, his justice and mercy. It points us toward the absolute sinfulness of man. It points us toward the gospel that Jesus died for us to restore us to God and, and that he stands and prays for us. Now, one more question. As we come from a passage like this, we need to ask, what response should this passage prompt in me? What do I, before we, we need to do all those other questions before we ask, what do I do with it? But we need to ask, what do I do with it? How do I apply this? And friends, our world is often wicked, disgusting, abhorrent, unjust, and filthy, but when was the last time we spent concentrated time interceding for it? Even just our little corner of it. When we encounter the wickedness of the world, is our first inclination to post it on Facebook or to pray to God about it? Are we content, quite literally, to let our nation go to hell, or will we stand in the gap? This passage calls us in your notes to passionate, persistent prayer. To passionate, 
persistent prayer. We are called to intercession, to pray, to go before the courts of heaven and plead for God to act and then trust that God will be merciful and just in everything that He does. To pray like Abraham did, informed by who God is, trusting that He does right all the time. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And notice that Abraham comes before God in prayer with layers of concern. I think sometimes we struggle when we come to prayer because we think we only need to have one concern. But no, Abraham has layers of concerns. He comes to God first concerned for his glory. He says, hey, I long that people would see you as the glorious judge you are. So he's concerned, but he's also concerned for the city. He's concerned about the righteous there. God's concerned about Lot and his family. And we'll see next week, but Abraham's prayer, at least for Lot, is answered. Persistent, passionate prayer. He prayed for the city as a whole. God, consider the city and all the resources and the gifts there. He comes with a layer of concerns. And friends, we should come in the same way. With a ton of concerns on our mind, we can bring to him. And I've got an opening in your notes, and I hope that you'll take time to fill this out an application for you to consider, I will stand in the gap for the nation, your family, your city, your county, our schools, a prodigal, a friend. Who or what will you stand in the gap for? Let me tell you, I, the, the preacher had the sermon applied to him the other day. I had somebody who I had ministered to for years and years and years come to me and and I and I had found out through him sharing with me that basically everything I poured into him for all those years he just sort of rejected and was going to do his own thing and I came to Dana and I was so upset I was just like you know like I'd watch him just destroy his life and then it hit me I was like why haven't I stood in the gap for him why don't I begin to stand in the gap for him and for his future? Are we pursuing God in prayer on behalf of others, burdened by his glory and driven by compassion? Passionately, and notice, persistently. Abraham persisted. 50, Lord. What about 45? Half a dozen times faith-filled, humble perseverance in prayer. Oh, how many times I think we just don't see our prayer answered because we're so impatient. We want it right here, right now. We want God to do Uber, Uber Eats, right? Just bring it to us. But no, He wants us to persistently do it. Consider what Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 says. These are famous words, but think about this. Jesus says, ask. And here he's meaning continuously ask. Not just ask me one time. Keep on asking and it will be given to you. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks will be opened. And then he says, Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? If your son or daughter asks you to take them to go get chicken nuggets today, you're not just going to kick them out of the car. 
right? You're not going to go, nah, you're, I'm just going to give you a snake instead. No, you might or might not give them chicken nuggets. I see some folks looking around, but you're going to give them good gifts. How much more your Father who is in heaven? And consider, Sodom was destroyed. Did Abraham's prayer fail? I mean, Sodom was destroyed, but Lot was rescued out, as were his daughters, and at least his wife got part of the way. You know, we'll read about that next week. She got, she got most of the way out, right? Did Abraham's prayer get answered? Let me have a look at this. Genesis 19, 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the city in which Lot had lived. Notice, it says God remembered Abraham and not Lot. His prayer was heard. God displayed his judgment in, in judging Sodom. He is the judge of all the earth and he will do what is just. He showed compassion for Lot, who we're going to learn later is called righteous, which should just blow our mind. <laughs> and he also spared a nearby city called Zoar. And Zoar may seem insignificant to us, but it was important enough to God to spare that Lot could run to Zoar. Today, the response to this text is to pray. I think it's a call for our church to begin to think through ways we can schedule intentional, passionate times of prayer together. You'll be surprised how many folks will send you prayer requests but won't show up when it's time to actually pray for them. It's a call to pray and for our church to consider when can we come together to pray together for our world. It's a call for us to commit to pray for other people individually. And it's a call to you who may have never committed your life to Jesus. Some of you may be realizing that you're walking in the way of Sodom and in the way of the world. And the Bible says that whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone, anybody. You may be living in Sodom today, but you're part of everyone. If you need to make that step and become a follower of Jesus, you can pray right where you are. I usually tell people to remember the ABCs, to admit before God that you're a sinner, to believe that Jesus died and rose again in your place, and to confess that he is Lord of your life and to confess before him your sin. But you can also talk with me or whoever brought you today because there's nothing more urgent than knowing God through faith in Jesus Christ. But this is also an invitation to all of us to pray. If you're a believer, you were called to stand in the gap just as Abraham did. To pray, to plead, to intercede on behalf of a world, a family, a city for the glory of God and out of love for neighbor. May we commit ourselves in the days and weeks ahead to stand in the gap and trusting that the judge of all the earth will do what is just. Let's stand and let's pray together. Father in heaven, we need more somber in our life. <laughs> we far too often live a life distracted, caught up in all these funny 
things in the world that, yes, are good gifts and not bad things, but, Lord, there are serious matters in this world. There are things that we need to come before you for, for a nation that we're in walking in wickedness. Well, this isn't even about politics or a party, but Lord, this is about a whole nation gone astray in a number of ways. And so we stand in the gap and pray your mercy upon the United States, upon Kentucky, upon Trigg County, upon Katie's and wherever we may live, whatever small community that may be. We pray for our families. We pray for your help to be the witnesses that we're called to be. Lord, because yes, we're called to pray and stand in the gap, but we're also called to go with your gospel, with the truth of your word. I ask that you would give us the boldness to go, the ability and the strength to go, the opportunity, Lord, open up our eyes to what's around us. Help us not to be blinded and so caught up in other things. Lord, do work in our hearts through the word that you spoke. And Lord, help us to respond properly to your word. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
it to you. Here we go. All things work together for my good. Lift it up. You make all things work together for my good. You make all things work together for my good. You make all things work together for my good. Come on. You make all things work together for my good. You make all things work together for my good. judge of all the earth shall do what is right. I encourage you before we, uh, before we read our benediction together, just to be thinking about who you'll stand in the gap for. Maybe that's a person that you can reach out to and invite to church as, as you pass the exit. Uh, you'll see not only the place where you can give in the basket, but also some invite cards you can take with you. Anytime I go to the dog park, my wife knows the person that's there is getting an invite. <laughs> one way or another. And so think about people that you can begin to invite. Also be careful as you head out these doors, there was some water in the floor out here on the way out the door, so just be careful as you head out. We close with a benediction, a blessing, a promise from God's word from Romans chapter 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen.